Good morning. For those of you who've read ahead, you'll notice this is different from most psalms. Uh, quite a bit different, in fact. I did a little research because I was wondering why the psalmist said what he did here. And uh, the background story is that the psalmist is standing before a corrupt court, falsely accused of a crime. And the situation is made more poignant because the people who are accusing him and the court itself were once his friends. In his distress, he turns to God to ask for help, asking him to reverse the roles and allow him to judge the court and one person in particular who is either the judge or the accuser. So from the Common English Bible, Psalm 109, verses 1 through 21. God of my praise, don't keep quiet, because the mouths of wicked liars have opened up against me, talking about me with lying tongues. Hateful words surround me. They attack me for no reason. Instead of returning my love, they accuse me. But I am at prayer. They repay me evil for good, hatred in return for my love. Appoint a wicked person to be against this person, they say, an accuser to stand right next to him. When the sentence is passed, let him be found guilty. Let his prayer be found sinful. Let his days be few. Let someone else assume his position. Let his children become orphans. Let his wife turn into a widow. Let his children wander aimlessly, begging, driven out of their ruined homes. Let a creditor seize everything he owns. Let strangers plunder his wealth. Let no one extend faithful love to him. Let no one have mercy on his orphans. Let his descendants be eliminated. Let their names be wiped out in just one generation. Let his father's wrongdoing be remembered before the Lord. Let his mother's sin never be wiped out. Let them be before the Lord always, and let God eliminate the very memory of them from the land. All because this person didn't remember to demonstrate faithful love, but chased after the poor and needy, even the brokenhearted, with deadly intent. Since he loved to curse, let it come back on him. Since he didn't care much for blessing, let it be far away from him. Since he wore curses like a coat, let them seep inside him like water, seep into his bones like oil. Let them be like the clothes he wears, like a belt that is always around him. But let all that be the reward my accusers get from the Lord, the reward for those who speak evil against me. But you, Lord, my Lord, act on my behalf for the sake of your name. Deliver me because your faithful love is so good. The word of God for the people of God. Early on this morning, uh, as worship was beginning and we were gathering together, I thought I was going to just have to turn around and preach to the choir because they outnumbered you all for a while. Sorry, choir. So, uh, how many of you came this morning hoping that you were going to hear a Valentine's message about love or anything like that? Anybody? One. Maybe two. Okay, so you're going to be disappointed really quickly. Um, but the rest of you, we'll give you time to determine that or not. So, um, this is a, the beginning of a series that I hope will move us in some different directions in our lives uh, uh, from kind of some aspects where things around us seem in so much turmoil and chaos that it also might create in us these moments of joy where we feel like dancing in life, whether it be metaphorical or real. In your, in your heart and in your mind and in your body, but to find some different things about life that we might be able to enjoy 
in this time of Lent. Because Lent's not just a time of repentance, it's also a time of preparation. It's a time for us to expect some things to transform in our lives and be different as we move through this season. So that's my goal, is to hopefully move us through that. and Using the laments, how we might be a people who turn from weeping to dancing. This morning we're going to talk about it from the aspect of visible wounds and how we might sense this not only in our own lives and experience it, but in those that are around us and how we might tend to the wounds of one another as well as ourselves. To think of it in the aspect of a variety of different stories. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we experience one of the many stories of King David's life. You probably will recognize it, but it begins with these words. Listen to it. 2 Samuel chapter 11 begins, In the spring, when kings went off to war, David sent Joab along with his servants and all the Israelites, and they destroyed the Ammonites, attacking the city of Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Two things in particular uh, that I want you to hone in on that story. In the spring when kings went off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. Many of you who kind of know your your biblical themes and stories, particularly of David's life, you know this is the beginning of a, a troublesome moment for David. David finds himself on the rooftop of the palace one evening while all the men are out to war. He is still in Jerusalem. He's out on the top of the, the rooftop of the palace and he's surveying the city. And in that he sees on one particular rooftop a beautiful woman bathing. Now, Take note of this for a moment, though. She wasn't the only one bathing on a rooftop. It was common in that day and age for all people to bathe on their rooftops. That's where their bathrooms were, their bathtubs were. There were probably several people out bathing, but this one particular woman caught David's eye. He sent messengers over to inquire who she was, and they reported that she was Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of his soldiers. David's next move was to do what all kings do. He sent a messenger over to get her, according to the scriptures. Now, here's the footnote of this. When the Israelites gathered as tribes and demanded from Samuel that a king be appointed over them, when they threw God off as their king and decided they wanted a human king, Samuel the prophet said this to them, This is how a king will rule over you. He will take your sons and use them for war. He will take your daughters as his servants. He will take your best fields. He will take your best slaves. He will take one-tenth of your flocks because kings take things. And David took Bathsheba, according to this story. Now, we all know that the story goes a little bit further. It was discovered that Bathsheba was pregnant with David's child. And so David sends a letter to Joab on the battlefield. He's got to come up with a plan on how to conceal his sin. So he sends a letter to Joab, the commander, and he says, Send Uriah the Hittite home to report on how the war is going. So Uriah comes back to Jerusalem and reports to David, how the war is progressing. And at the end of his report, David says to Uriah, 
why don't you go home and wash your feet? You adults probably understand the euphemism of that. It means to go home and enjoy all the pleasures of your home. Take leave and go enjoy everything. But we all know that Uriah left the palace and spent the night at the palace gates, sleeping with the servants. David caught wind of this the next morning, and he called Uriah before him, and he said, why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, all of my fellow soldiers are sleeping in the fields, away from the comforts of their home. How can I go home myself and enjoy the comforts of my own home? I would not do that. So David goes on and says, well, okay, well, why don't you stay one more night in the city? I'm going to throw a little bit of a party. You can come eat and drink with me tonight, and then I'll send you back to the battlefields tomorrow. And Uriah says, okay. So he comes, and he eats, and he drinks with the king, and and the king's hoping that he'll be drunk enough that he'll go home and enjoy all the comforts of home. But he doesn't. Uriah spends the night at the palace gates with all the servants. So David has to think of plan B. What do I do next? So he pens a letter to Joab, the commander, and he says to Joab, as Uriah returns to the battlefield, I want you to put him at the apex of the fiercest part of the battle. And as it begins to really furiously wage in war, Draw the troops back just enough that it is certain Uriah will die. And Uriah hand carries this note back to the commander, Joab. And that's exactly what they do. Joab places him at the very front of the fiercest part of the battle. And as it gets to the fervor, the hottest point of it, he pulls the troops back just far enough and Uriah is murdered, killed in the scene of the battle. If you think about this, in many forms and in many ways, David is a a perpetrator of vicious wounds in this. We all know that as the story progresses, David brings Bathsheba into his palace. Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David and his sin is revealed. The child that Bathsheba and David have, it dies of illness shortly after its birth, all because of David and his sin. On the roof of the palace one evening in the spring, King David was in the wrong place at just the right time. You get that? How often do we find ourselves maybe in that same circumstance, that same situation? We're in the wrong place at just the right time. And wounds come from these moments. Because of that, for David, wounds were inflicted. Very visible wounds were inflicted. He took another man's wife to be his own. He had the man killed in battle, literally sentenced him to his death. A child died because of David's own sin and pride and power and authority and abuse. David was a perpetrator that caused visible wounds upon many people. But we also know that David was one who suffered from his own wounds. Early on, Saul pursued him, trying to kill him because he had been anointed to be the next king. Later, his own son Absalom would try to pursue him to kill him so that he might take over his throne. David is one who was a perpetrator and a victim in Scripture. One who knew what it meant to inflict visible wounds on others. One who knew 
the very cost of those wounds himself. The Psalms, some of these Psalms are David's own expression of these things, these woundings. Others of the Psalms are written in the vein of David and in the style of David. And Psalm 109 is a lament that is written in that style. Now, it's interesting that David gave you an uh, understanding of it, kind of a synopsis of how the psalm was fleshed out. Many of the commentators kind of wrestle with what is really going on in this psalm, who the author is and who is speaking. As David mentioned, it could have been one person in a court scene that is going against uh, those who have intentionally inflicted harm upon him and been his false accusers. Another commentator actually says that it's written for the community of exiles, a community of people who know what it is to be falsely imprisoned, have everything stripped from them and at the hands of their abusers to be used and visible wounds given because of that. The curious thing is it's written in first person and can have as much as an individual expression to the broad communal expression and understanding. Walter Brueggemann, though, aptly calls this the song of hate. You think about the words that are used. It demands an answer from God, not mere words from God, not another psalm to be read to the community to soothe the souls and the bodies and the spirits of the people. No, the writer speaks on behalf of a people who are demanding God to act justly on their behalf. They want God to relieve their physical suffering for they are the poor and the needy. They want God to execute justice on those who have been unjust, those who have inflicted the wounds upon them. They want deliverance. They want to move from this weeping to dancing. Think about those demands for a moment. Do I, do I need to read them again? Or are they kind of seared in your brain from the reading of David already? Pretty strong words, that what the writer is asking for. That, that the person who is their false accuser, the oppressor, that their whole family and lineage be completely annihilated and wiped out. How strong that visceral response. You know, it might be like that for some of us as well. We might find ourselves in in one or two of these kinds of categories as people individually and as communities. There might be an audience of us here that these words speak about us. We have found that there are moments in our lives where we have been the perpetrators ourselves. We've inflicted wounds upon those around us, maybe the ones that we love the most. They might be physical, they might be verbal wounds, but we know them. We're cognizant of them. And we realize in this moment that we could be the one that is accused in this scenario. Others of us, though, we might be the ones who are victims. We might be the ones who know the visible wounds of the injustice of the world around us. Whether it comes from the social systemic kinds of forms that are economic and political, the racial or even gender kind of based, we know the physical wounds that come from that. We know the wounds of what it means to have someone else harm us. We know what it means to be verbally put down and how that can crush our spirits, wound us. And we carry those around, some of us, these very prevalent wounds. We understand the cry of the psalmist. It may have been your own cry at one point, yelling at the heavens, demanding that God do something on your behalf, that justice might come and deliverance might come. 
and that your weeping might be turned to dancing. I'd also suggest there's a category of you here today. This does not apply to you at all. Because at this moment in your life, joy is your greatest experience and you are dancing today. What I would also say beyond that is, is in our own woundedness or in our own joy, we need to sometimes take a broader perspective to the world. We get so focused on just our own selves. that We need to look at the world around us and see who those are that are experiencing the wounds of the world and how we might invite them into this conversation to come and experience the grace and the love of God that their weeping might be turned to dancing as well. I read a story yesterday on KansasCity.com. It's about an organization in Kansas City, Kansas, that is serving the homeless. Some of you may have read this same story. At one time, there was a caseworker in Kansas City, Kansas, by the name of Frank Williams. Frank Williams died at the age of 32 of an aneurysm. And an organization, an agency by the name of Wyandotte, Inc., actually set up what's called the Frank Williams Housing Resource Center in Kansas City, Kansas. It served as a drop-in organization for the homeless of Kansas City, Kansas. You could come in and you could get two loads of laundry done for free, a cup of coffee, a place that was dry and warm or would bring you in out of the desperate heat, somewhere to go and seek relief. They had showers there and bathrooms so that you could take a shower and use clean facilities. They also had computers and mailboxes and telephones for their clients so that you could set up and receive mail, so that you could use a computer to try to find a job or the telephone to arrange uh, transportation or other kinds of resources. It was a lifeline for the homeless in Kansas City, Kansas, until Friday. On Friday, it closed its doors because Wyandotte, Inc. had lost its funding for the Frank Williams Center. And so there are no longer an organization there that will be able to meet the needs of the homeless in this way. And not only that, they had to get rid of the site manager, several part-time people, and their security guard because they had no position for them to serve. There's nothing in Kansas City, Kansas to replace that. The Frank Williams Center. The journalist who wrote the article actually interviewed a couple of the clients who were coming and had not been informed or didn't know about this. One of them was a 26-year-old young woman who had no heat or electricity at the place where she was staying. Did you hear that? A 26-year-old young woman. How many of you, the face of homelessness is like 50 or older than that, you know, that it, we get this image in our head. This is a 26-year-old woman who has no place to go, no car, no, need, no, no basic services in the place where she stays, no electricity, no heat. This was her lifeline. And her response was, is now she had no idea where she was going to turn next. Another man simply said this when, when interviewed. He said, you know, people, people just really don't care. This is his assumption. This is his experience. He said they'll help Lassie and Fido or any other dog or cat get adopted to a new home because that's quick and that's easy. It takes a lot more effort to help a man get into a job and to help him succeed.
You know, each and every Sunday we gather as a community of faith and we proclaim a God of love and justice, a God of mercy and a God of grace, a God who rescues, a God who wants to turn people's weeping into dancing. That is the God that we have found faith in, an unfailing God, a God who is not victimized by our sin and a God who does not make us victims, rather a God who is steadfast, faithful in his love and his mercy that is for all people. But here's what makes this difficult for me, dear friends, and maybe for you as well. How do we translate these images of God into our modern human experience so that God becomes real and tangible in the midst of our wounds, in the midst of what we're feeling in this moment? How does God become real and present with us? I'm going to suggest a couple of ways in which I think that happens and can continue to happen for any of us and many of us. I think the first part of it is is that we need to be a part of and be a part of a healing community of faith that is present with one another. The Apostle Paul encourages us to bear one another's burdens. He wrote about this in Galatians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians, he also wrote that when the body of Christ suffers, when one person in the body of Christ suffers, the whole body should suffer together. There's a communal nature of gathering as a community of faith that also shares with one another in the very visible wounds that are present and here today. And that we as the community gather around those who are experiencing that. That we share in their weeping. So that through that we might journey to the dancing together. But he also says that we should be a healing community that is present in the world around us as well. Present for our very neighbors. Whether they live right next door to us or they come and and are served by us. I, I marvel at all that transpired yesterday morning for baby Grace. I understand that it was a, a magnificent event. There was much that was offered through the generosity of not only you as members of St. John's, but others beyond and the gifts that were available and given to the families that are under-resourced and need, whether it's a pair of pants or a shirt or a small jacket or diapers and all of these gifts that it takes for these families to survive, to cover the visible wounds of their children as ones who go without so many different resources, especially in the winter. You think about how that transpires as a way in which we are a community of faith present in our neighborhoods, sharing in where people are weeping. I pray that in all of this, that we might be a people who find ourselves sharing in one another's wounds and sharing in the wounds of the, of the world around us. That we simply be a people who are sharing in one another's burdens and carrying that. That when the community weeps, that we weep together. And that from that we might journey to the joy of God that causes us to dance. And that in our presence we might experience the very presence of God. Our salvation, our refuge. The one who has come to tend our wounds. That we might dance. So here's what I hope you you take away from this moment together. Just a couple of simple things to wrestle with, maybe remember That some of us may find ourselves as perpetrators who inflict harm. Others of us may be the wounded who are bearing these wounds. 
in the world around us. Many of us find ourselves, you know, sharing in both of those worlds. Remember that the people cried out for God's justice. They were the poor and the needy, and they expected God to do something, to deliver, so that their woundedness might be addressed, that their weeping might be turned to dancing. I wonder how that looks in your life today and in the world around you. What form does it take? Here's an invitation for you as we think about moving into this experience ourselves. I would say if you're someone who finds yourself wounded today and you're struggling with that, you're weeping because of it, that you might need to find someone here in the community that you trust and that you can share your burden with and and know that they will come alongside of you. They will be the active presence of God in your life and to lean upon someone. And that in that, see that if God doesn't turn your visible wounds into dancing. Or maybe to make yourself available to someone in your neighborhood. You might know someone around you that needs to have that kind of presence in their life. They have wounds that are very visible, very prevalent. And you can be the active presence of God by coming and sharing. There are forms and ways in which every single one of us can participate in that because that's the business I believe that God is in. Sending every single one of us to be God's active presence in others' lives. Whether we're the wounded that need to receive that or the blessed who need to go, may God use each and every one of us for His purposes. And from that, may we see weeping turned into dancing. Would you join me now in a moment of prayer? Lord of mercy and of grace, we come before you in this simple moment of prayer. For some of us, this might be a turning point in our lives. We might see ourselves as one who has so often inflicted wounds upon others. And from this we confess and we repent. We ask, O Lord, that you might transform us in not only our minds but our actions. Create in us your own heart that is of love and grace. Others of us may be bearing wounds today, O Lord. And we come and we pray that you might send someone to be your active presence in our lives. To come and share, not only in our burden, but to share your words that are healing. Your words that will bring your mercy and your grace. And from that, Lord, we pray that all of us might experience a transformation. That our weeping might be turned into dancing by you. All these things we pray in the name of your Son, our Savior.